Welcome. This is Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us in today's teleconference. We're really excited to have an incredible expert join us today for our topic dealing with international tax issues for foreign nationals, for high net worth individuals and companies or businesses that hire foreign nationals. Our expert today is Paula Singer, who is a tax attorney and partner in the tax law firm of Vekuvik, Mayotte and Singer in Newton, Massachusetts. She's focused her work on international tax matters for individuals, for businesses, trusts and estates. They provide tax planning and in fact one of her sort of what started off I guess as a hobby ended up becoming this fantastic business was to create international tax software which was recently sold to Thomson Reuters uh, and she's actually working with Thomson Reuters in the implementation of their tax software as well as continuing to work with clients on tax related matters. She's, believe it or not, Paula has even assisted the IRS and NAFSA with the development of the Form 1040 NREZ tax returns. She speaks at several conferences locally, regionally, and nationally. She's also co-authored articles, and she's truly, truly an expert. So we're so honored to have you join us today, Paula. Oh, thank you. Okay, so today's topic, as we talked about, is going to deal, and I'm going to be asking Paula questions, but obviously I'm not as knowledgeable as I tend to be with most immigration law matters on tax-related matters. So Paula will be doing most of the speaking for today's teleconference. Just a comment that Paula had shared with us was that the IRS has announced recently that they are realigning their audit resources to focus more on companies with less than $250 million in assets with international operations. So I guess that's the scary piece of news to get us started. But why don't we go over, uh, Paula, a bunch of questions and answers while you can try to explain this complex field for our audience. So let's start off with the preliminary question of who is a resident or non-resident for U.S. taxation purposes? First, what I'd like to do before explaining that is um, explain why it matters. Uh, we have two separate tax regimes in the United States. Uh, there's one that applies to U.S. citizens and to foreign nationals who are resident aliens for tax purposes. They're taxed on their worldwide income under the same rules that U.S. citizens are taxed. And then there's a completely separate tax regime that applies to foreign nationals who are non-resident aliens for tax purposes. And they're only taxed on their U.S. source income, uh, as it's defined under uh, U.S. tax rules, and on their income that's called effectively connected to a U.S. trade of business. Uh, and uh, that type of income includes um, uh compensation for services performed in the United States, regardless of where the, the payment or the currency of the payment is uh, um, out of. So someone can be paid overseas and still end up having U.S. tax obligations. The, uh, the other thing that's important to know is these tax terms 
resident alien and non-resident alien have different definitions than they do for immigration purposes. So when I use the terms, uh, I'm using the, the tax definition. Uh, and and the other thing is there are other um, areas of taxation that use the terms resident and non-resident. There, we have different rules for estate and gift taxation for the federal rules, um, and we also... Uh, have at the state level, each state has its own definition of who's a resident or a non-resident for state purposes. So you can see why people would be confused about uh, these tax rules from the very beginning, because it's, it's hard enough just to figure out which definition of resident and non-resident applies in which situation. I think that makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for that preliminary explanation because it really helps to set the stage. And if I can just continue for a second, uh, Paula, I know in today's agenda we're going to be focusing in the first part on employer and business and company sort of tax issues dealing with foreign nationals. Um, And the second part is the one where we'll focus a little bit on the high net worth individuals and their tax implications uh, for them. Right. So, so this is fantastic for you to have laid down, if you will, the foundation on how to approach and why we need to, and, and why there's a, this inherent difference in the use of the similar terms f- between tax law, federal tax law, immigration law, state laws, etc. Right. Any time you're using the term, you have to say, what's the context for the term? Because, Absolutely. Uh, otherwise, uh, you'll end up with the wrong answer. Uh, absolutely. On on the income tax side, um, the rules for uh, determining who's a resident alien for the uh, majority uh, of um, non-immigrants is uh, pretty easy to deal with. These rules came out in 1985. They're very objective. Um, They're actually uh, well um, defined in IRS Publication 519, if someone wants to read about it more. But it's a it's a weighted average, and it's based on physical presence in the United States. Uh, and uh, it's a formula over a three-calendar-year period. They take 100% of the U.S. Uh, days in the current year. So if you're doing a, a tax return, the current year would have been the prior year. So we're working on 2011 tax returns now, so that would be the current year. The year before that... They take a third of the days, and the year before that, a sixth of the days, add them all up. If it adds up to 183 days or more, the individual's a resident alien. And then there are some uh, exceptions to that. But it's it's very objective, and it was written that way so that foreign nationals who travel to the United States on business can keep track of their time uh, in the United States so that they don't become residents for tax purposes. Because if they do become residents, they're going to be tax on their worldwide income. Exactly. And I think that's a very important point uh, because people don't realize because they, of course, say, well, I'm not a tax, I'm not a resident. And you're saying, of course, you're a resident for tax purpose, even if you're not a resident alien or permanent resident for green card purposes. Right. And then the whole computation of time. So, Paula, then who are the exempt individuals? Which categories? Because we've heard of categories like the F1 and the J1, et cetera who are exempt for U.S. tax purposes. Yes. Now, they're, uh, they're not exempt from tax. They're only exempt from counting their U.S. days. And it's for specified periods of, of time. 
depending on the category that the individual is in. The uh, the first category of the students, that's uh, individuals who are in um, F or M status as, uh, as individuals. Uh, and it also includes um, J exchange visitors who are in either the student category or the student intern category. It doesn't include research scholars, although research scholars tend to think of themselves as students. They're actually non-students for purposes of these rules. And they get five calendar years when they don't count their days. Now that's so if they're in that status, uh, even for a, a day in that status in a calendar year, uh, that counts as uh, using up a calendar year. So uh, for five calendar years, the individuals can be non-residents. If they've been here before uh, in uh, FMJ or Q status, as a, an exempt individual, they have to count those earlier calendar years, too. But once they go over the five calendar years, they start counting their days. The, the next category are the, what we call the J non-students. It's J exchange visitors who are in any other category other than student or a student intern. And uh, they get uh, a, um, their limitation as they don't count their U.S. days for two out of the current seven calendar years. And if they were here before as an exempt individual in FMJ or Q status in prior um, years, they have to take that into account in doing, um, determining whether they are, um, whether they count their um, days in the uh, current year or not. So they're pretty complicated to deal with if they've been here before. They're pretty simple if it's their first visit in, as a J exchange visitor in a non-student category. The first calendar year, they are non-residents uh, because their days don't count. The second calendar year, they're non-residents because their days don't count. In the third calendar year, if they're going to be here more than 183 days, they have to be treated as a resident from um, their first day in that calendar year, which is typically January 1st. Okay. Uh, if they were here before, it's a lot more complicated to figure oh. out what their status is, tax status is. And then there are diplomats who are in uh, A status or G status, individuals who are employees of international organizations, and they generally uh, don't count their U.S. days and remain non-residents for the, all the period of time that they're here. Okie dokie. Thank you, Paula. Uh, so I just want to be sure, I know we have a lot of employers and HR managers and other sort of company-related or business-related representatives in today's conference call. So just be patient and stay with us because the next question pertains directly to all of you because it's because the question that we hope to have clarification from Paula is, from the employer's perspective, what does all of this make a difference? Why should it matter? Why should they care? Uh, you know, wh why should the employer worry about it? Because wouldn't they be treating everybody like doing the normal withholding sort of issues? I know there's differences, but from the employer's perspective, I think that's what we'd like to focus a little bit on. Uh, there are differences. The reason for that is uh, if someone is a non-resident alien, uh, their tax obligations uh, would be very different than uh, they are if they're a resident alien. Uh, even if they just have uh, wages for their income, because the um, 
the wage withholding rules and the um, well the payroll rules basically mirror the um, the the tax rules and the rules for non-resident aliens um, when you're dealing with their effectively connected income are very different uh, than they are for citizens and residents. Uh, they can only claim one personal exemption. There's a few exceptions, but, but not many. Um, they, If they're married, they have to use married filing separate re- separately rates. They can't use uh, married filing jointly rates. And they... Um, they can't use a standard deduction, uh, with one exception for students and uh, business apprentices from, from India. So because they are taxed so differently, their wage withholding rules are very different. The, uh, actually, these are addressed pretty well in IRS Publication um, 15, which is Circulary, the Employer's Tax Guide, if, if uh, anybody wants to go through them. Um, there are also some special... Uh, exceptions for certain non-resident aliens, and, and the biggest one is uh, what, uh, what I call the NRA FICA exception. Uh, this applies to uh, individuals who are in the um, either uh, F1, uh, M1, J1, or Q1 status, uh, provided they're uh, working with authorization. But it only applies to these individuals who are non-resident aliens. So if the individual has become a resident alien under that substantial presence test, which is that weighted average test that I described a few minutes ago, they're not going to qualify for this test. So the employer has to collect enough information from their employee uh, in order to uh, apply these rules to... um, get the individuals into the right category. So when you're dealing with uh, the the non-immigrant categories, they're going to have to figure out, is, is the individual uh, in that current year a resident alien and taxed under the same rules as citizens, or are they non-residents and taxed under these uh, separate rules? Yeah, and you know, I know a lot of employers, unfortunately, I guess, because of the sharing of information between the USCIS and IRS with the Memorandum of Understanding, the MOUs, and the sharing of information in general, they began to realize when they became liable for uh, failing to withhold appropriate taxes and were liable for penalties and interests. Right, and that's how um, IRS enforces these rules is by basically uh, collecting the underwithheld taxes from the employer plus penalties uh, and interest. And um, it gets people's attention. Right, right. Well, I know that for sure that when a green card holder files, for example, because the person's not physically in the U.S. as a non-resident for tax purposes, it ends up jeopardizing the green card status for that person, even if that person is allowed to do so under some kind of a tax treaty, for example, between India and the U.S., there are tax treaties, but there's a risk for that person anyway. Right. Yeah, um, there, it, there is, um, because it's a... Uh, I think it's what's called a rebuttable presumption that uh, that a, an individual who's a green card holder, and uh, by the way, a green card holder is a resident alien for tax purposes, even if they are outside the United States, because um, we have taxation based on status, citizenship-based taxation, and we tax green card holders 
uh, and for U.S. Us, citizens. The United States as well. And under, um, if they're a resident of a country that we have a tax treaty with, they are, um, they may take a position under the tax treaty that they're a non-resident of the United States for tax purposes. But um, generally, that uh, can jeopardize their green card because um, a green card holder is outside the United States who's uh, ha- doesn't have all the same rights that that a citizen does, and when they are returning, uh, they're supposed to be a returning immigrant who is an individual who um, has no present intention of uh, abandoning that status. So it's it's a facts and circumstances uh, situation, and uh, I um, I discourage any of my clients from from taking that position unless they don't care about keeping their green card. Mm-hmm. And if they don't care, well. <laughs> well, I don't think, hopefully, most of our clients are very interested in getting the green card and keeping it, hopefully, safely, even though, like most good citizens and green card holders, we're proud to pay taxes, but equally proud to pay just a little bit less. I think that's... Yes, I, I, that's what I always point out, that is that uh, filing your taxes appropriately is the, is the cost for keeping your green card. There you go. Um, I know we have a lot of H-1B employers um, on the conference call today, Paula. And I know that sometimes um, the companies or the businesses obviously prefer paying, giving 1099s because they like to, because a lot of these H-1B employees are called consultants. They work on discrete projects. Um, And so the question is, are there any limitations for an H-1B employer to pay an employee a 10, to provide an employee a 1099 at the end of the calendar year instead of a W-2? Yeah, they shouldn't be doing that because under the uh, the regulations for H-1B and and, uh, and in the, the law, an H-1B creates uh, an em- employer-employee relationship. Uh, so they are employees. Uh, for tax purposes, and, and the regs actually uh, address uh, employment taxes. Um, they are um, not authorized to be engaged in self-employment, and uh, if their income is being reported on a 1099 in, in Box 7 mm-hmm. as self-employment income, uh, that's going to make them look to the Immigration Service as if they are engaging in unauthorized employment. Uh, and might prevent them from getting any future immigration benefits. Uh, also, the the reason that the government is really um, uh, intent on having them uh, taxed the way they should be from a payroll point of view is that uh, they're subject to U.S. Social Security tax and uh, and Medicare taxes, which is uh, which is a big part of the revenue of, of the United States these days, and. Um, there's actually been a, um, a USCIS uh, memorandum that, that came out about uh, this situation that, that made it very clear that H-1B uh, individuals are um, employees and uh, should be treated as employees for tax purposes. Thank you, Paula. I know that a lot of H-1B employers tend to provide housing for their employees. They tend to provide sort of in-kind benefits and assume that this is not part of the income which is taxable. And of course, and then a lot of these so-called H-1B consultants then end up being sent out, um, you know, and then being reimbursed for their food, their travel, their lodging expenses. 
but there are certain conditions under which that money that is so-called reimbursement is excluded from their income for which they're liable for taxes, and at times they're not. Could you just briefly clarify that? Right. The, the, this, has, this has been an ongoing issue for all of the years that I've been a tax lawyer, which is a long time. <laughs> and and it's, a, it's a very confusing um, area. Uh, the, the first rule is everything is income, unless it's excluded or exempt. Uh, or deductible. And when you're dealing with employment, uh, if it's employment income, it doesn't matter how it's paid or how it's delivered. Uh, It's wages. It might not be something that you can withhold uh, from, but uh, in that case, you have to withhold from their other uh, cash salaries. Given that, there are these situations uh, where certain types of um, of reimbursements and um, things like provided housing might be excluded from income. But they're only excluded from income if first the individual is uh, what's called temporarily away from their tax home. And their tax home is their principal place of business. So if they're temporarily away for a period that's expected to last uh, a year or less, uh, and there's a business purpose, and under the regulations, a business purpose means that the travel is attributable to the individual providing services, uh, and the amounts are paid or reimbursed under an accountable plan, um, they can be uh, excluded from income. Now, in order to have an accountable plan, um, you have to have substantiation of the expenses, either through receipts or direct payments, and then uh, any advances have to be done on a timely basis. And the IRS has a good description of accountable plans in their publication 463. Then what we have under these rules is something called a special substantiation rule, where the IRS and they, they actually have a whole revenue procedure that they um, used to come out with uh, almost annually, but uh, they'll only change it uh, occasionally now. And, and under these rules, um, an employee could be paid uh, a per diem for their travel, uh, food and lo- food and lodging, uh, primarily food and lodging. And uh, if it's within the federal guidelines for the uh, location where they are temporarily traveling to for for work, uh, that could be excluded from income. So. As you can see, there's a lot of different rules that have to be followed to get to the bottom line of being able to exclude uh, reimbursements for uh, food and lodging from income. Aha! Uh-huh. But so, so let's go go over this just quickly, uh, Laura, because, uh, Paula, because I'm sorry, I'm like, uh, because what we find is that in a lot of IT companies. The consultants, the H-1B consultants or the L-1 consultants will move from one project to another project, which is located in a completely different state, sometimes really, really far away from the principal place of business for the employer. And a lot of the companies and employers then sort of use this as the main place, the person's tax home being where the company's principal place of business is. And then they yeah, allow this person to travel all over and then try to show that it's a business expense to reimburse them for their apartment or condo or what have you. 
the the problem is it's supposed to be the individual's principal place of business. And uh, and in situations where the individual has no principal place of business, uh, then they are what's called an uh, itinerant, I guess. And uh, I think IRS in many of these situations would determine that... Uh, that the travel, food, and lodging that's being provided to the individual uh, ends up being just uh, wages that has to be uh, uh, withheld on and uh, and uh, payroll taxes paid on. Okay. Not a good result, I know. And this is an area that uh, that IRS is, I think, looking at uh, at a lot these days. Right, right, right. Because, of course, they want to try and tax every possible penny, especially in any economy, particularly in this sort of economy where they feel that already revenues have to some to great extent dropped. So if the employer finds that they're kind of already have been in some sort of violation or they've been taking deductions and breaks that they maybe shouldn't have or they've been giving employees per diem payments when really it should have been considered a wage or a salary... What are the implications? How can the employer try to now correct that problem? Well, they can um, they can actually amend their employment tax returns, mm-hmm. um, figure out what the additional uh, wages are that should have been uh, reported and, and withheld on, uh, and uh, pay the additional payroll taxes. Uh, on that, they'll they'll have some penalties and uh, and interest that will uh, attach to that. The um, basically the employment tax returns um, are open uh, for for audit for three years, and that and that's three years from um, April fifteenth of the year following the uh, the tax year of the employment tax return. Uh, and if they make those changes, they also have to um, amend the uh, the W-2 that was issued to the individual in order to include the additional income, and the individual uh, then uh, will have uh, a, an amended tax return that's due for whatever years are, are changed as well. So it is possible to uh, to correct these things. It's It's better for the employers to correct them uh, rather than waiting for for IRS to uh, to catch them on because that shows good faith. There is good faith. I mean, yeah. one of the things that the IRS likes to see are uh, organizations that are trying to come into compliance on these things. I mean, they know these rules aren't um, aren't easy for organizations to deal with. Uh, they're trying to put out a lot better information, uh, written in a lot easier. Um, better English, if you will, so it's easier to read and understand the publications. And uh, they, um, they're they less likely to impose uh, the strictest uh, penalties on organizations that are really trying to uh, do things right. Okay. Um because I'm always sensitive to time issues and I see we're coming close to 30 minutes and we try to do these in 45 minutes or so, what I would like to do is I know we have some questions and we've sort of touched upon this about living in a state and working in a state with no income tax, using that as your principal address while you know working in a different state. And we've sort of touched upon the itinerant 
worker that you sort of touched upon briefly, Paula? Uh, yes, uh, th- this raises a lot of issues in, uh, under the state tax rules because, as, as you can imagine, the states are trying to collect as much revenue as they can. And uh, the, uh, the way the rules work, like I said, they have their own definition of who's a resident for tax purposes and who's a non-resident for tax purposes. They generally apply the same way to U.S. citizens and foreign nationals. There are some states who might have a definition that will say that F-1 foreign students uh, remain non-residents for state purposes or something like that. But um, generally, uh, the rules are going to be applied the same in most states. Aha, uh-huh. so the same, the physical presence test that we talked about. Oh, no, that's a different, uh, they have their own physical presence test. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of them based on having 183 days of presence in the tax year and a principal place of abode in the state. Um, and uh, it, it's actually pretty easy to find the residency rules uh, by state because there's a, a uh, a website called uh, taxadmin, A-D-M-I-N, mm-hmm. .org, and it links to the state uh, tax authorities in, in each of the states. And uh, usually if you go into uh, their website and just put in uh, resident, it's going to come up with the rules for who's a resident of, of that state. Okay, well, that's really helpful, taxadmin.org. Okay. And I know another thing that a lot of companies do is that if the company, for example, has either a parent subsidiary or affiliate in a foreign country, and that foreign entity then hires a worker who is living, working in the United States, for example, in H-4 or some other status that does not authorize employment, to work remotely for that foreign company and pays the employee directly to the foreign bank account... I guess the questions that we often get asked is, how will the IRS ever know? But I don't know that that's a question you can easily well, answer. It's, if they have an employee who's working here who has an immigration status uh, given through USCIS, um, they can find that out through that direct feed that comes from USCIS. Uh, so they can know... Uh, who's working here, uh, will they know where that person is is working other than in the United States, not necessarily. Uh Aha. So you're saying from the filing fees that are paid to USCIS, for example, with an H-1 or an L-1, that's what you're talking about? Right. Well, they get, they they send the information on who the sponsored employees are directly to the IRS. Okay. So then technically the person is in violation by working on, for example, a tourist or an H-4 dependent status uh, and doing this remote work, there's legal, legally, from a legal point of view, there are tax obligations for the... Yeah, there are always tax obligations. Now, the, the issue is if the, if the individual is doing work here for, the, for an overseas employer, um, you know, technically it probably isn't work that's covered by the immigration laws because... The immigration laws are put in place to protect the U.S. Uh, marketplace for workers, and and if that's a job that wouldn't ever go to uh, anyone in the United States because of the particular circumstances, then it might not be work for 
immigration uh, purposes, but it would be work for um, tax purposes. So, but the the other problem is, even though it's it might not be work for immigration purposes, if if they're complying with the taxes, and an individual who is say an H four, who's not supposed to be right. t- working in the United States, might end up with income reported on a tax return that that makes the person look like they're engaged in unauthorized employment. So right. these are areas that really haven't been dealt with by the immigration service and, and the tax service. So It's interesting. So we start getting into these sort of slippery slope sort of areas. Yeah. Now, the, the other thing is when you have, when they have all these individuals in the United States, so the federal government knows about them, and these individuals are working in other states, um, not residing in those states, but just traveling to the other states to work, that's a huge issue on the state side, too, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for what they call non-resident workers, but they're, they're non-residents for state purposes. And, and the, uh, the states are getting uh, very aggressive at trying to um, find out who, who the workers are. I mean, they'll, they'll go to uh, uh, conferences and look at, uh, license plates and things. I mean, they have all different kinds of ways of of figuring out who's there doing, uh, you know, providing services in in their state. And so, if if you try to do things right, which companies should, uh, you can end up having uh, payroll obligations in a number of states. And my little software company was a really good example. At at various times. Uh, and, and we had actually telecommuters, which is even a, a bigger deal because they're there all the time. Um, you know, we were we were paying payroll taxes in uh, in Massachusetts, Vermont, Rhode Island, uh, South Carolina, Virginia. So it uh, it gets to be a, a a big burden. But this is really on the state's radar screen. So. Um, they're, they're trying to work out more reasonable rules on a nationwide basis, but so far we don't have that. Aha. Uh-huh. Now, of course, we, you and I both know, Paula, and, and, and hopefully everybody who's attending this conference today understands that U.S. citizens and residents are subject to U.S. income tax on their worldwide income. And obviously this includes income from income-producing assets both inside and outside of the U.S., which uh, and all of the income has to be included on your form 1040 or whatever tax form you're using right. using US tax principles what is the issue what is the company's responsibility because we have employers and businesses primarily on this phone call that are saying hey what how does it affect me if the employee does or doesn't do it i guess it's really not something that it's an individual responsibility correct but- if the income isn't uh, connected with their employment, it is the individual's responsibility to report their income properly. Okay. Now, we also might have in today's conference call certain high net worth individuals. So I know there's a difference in the tax treatment between a U.S. citizen and a green card holder in terms of estate taxes and certain tax liabilities. So I don't know if you can briefly touch upon that issue. Uh, yeah, the um, well, the biggest difference on the uh, the estate tax side is that uh, when transfers are made to um, a U.S. citizen spouse at, at the at the death 
of, uh, of an individual, uh, there's an unlimited marital deduction, so there's no estate tax. However, if a transfer is made to a, uh, a non-U.S. citizen spouse, that um, unlimited marital deduction doesn't apply. Uh, there might be a, um, uh, um, an estate tax treaty that would provide for um, a, a partial uh, deduction or maybe a full deduction, or even with Canada, it, it actually comes under the income tax treaty. Uh, but um, lacking that, in order to avoid that problem, uh, it's one of two things, become a, a, a U.S. citizen, the, which uh, couples frequently do, and that takes care of the estate tax issues, and as long as they're not moving back overseas, they don't have all of the other issues that come along with U.S. citizenship. Um, or they, there are, there's a mechanical way of dealing with it, which is called a QDOT, which uh, is, is a trust that's set up so that the assets transferred to the non-citizen spouse are transferred through this trust. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a way that of um, assuring that when, when the principal is paid out of the trust, it, it's grossed up for the estate tax that would have been paid had it, uh, had it been taxed when the, um, the, sp- the first spouse died. Um, that can actually be done post-mortem, and, and I've actually um, done that in a number of uh, cases. So, so you're saying they could pretty much avoid the disadvantage by getting by using the Q dot f- method, they, yeah, yeah. If they do the right tax planning, estate mm-hmm. tax planning, they uh, they can avoid it. It it really depends on what their assets are. I mean, uh, it's very difficult to deal with if uh, if you're dealing with someone who has worldwide assets and then not something that uh, easily goes through a U.S. trust, like a uh, um, what was it a, a cattle ranch in Argentina? One of my clients had. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I told him, I said, well, uh, leave the country. <laughs> wow. So it, uh, you know, it really depends on, on what's going on. So there are different uh, solutions, but it it really depends on the individual's uh, facts. And it's similar uh, rules in terms of tag, gift taxes, because a lot of people want to give gifts to their family whether living in the U.S. or outside the U.S., and I know that there is maximum um, sort of valuation of up to 13000 per person and, I guess, 26000 yeah. per couple. Uh, the, the thing that, uh, that foreign nationals need to understand is if, if they receive an inheritance from someone outside the United States, um, they're not taxed on that inheritance. We don't have an inheritance tax, uh, and... The inheritance isn't treated as income. Income earned on that, if it's an, an income-producing asset, is going to be their income. But they're not going to be taxed on the inheritance when, when they get it. But that's interesting. So the U.S. doesn't tax on the inheritance from out, outside the country, but they right. tax an American citizen that leaves an inheritance for the family unless there's sort of you created some kind of tax shelter. Yeah, we have... What we have is an estate tax, so that's that's taxed uh, at a at a different level. So when an, an individual uh, dies, if that individual is uh, is a U.S. citizen or domiciled in the United States, 
then their worldwide assets are uh, can be subject to the estate tax after the uh, the different deductions and, and things exclusions that can be taken. So that's why when an individual who's uh, in the United States and uh, receives an inheritance, that's not taxed. But there is a disclosure rule that they have to uh, follow. It's a Form 3520 uh, that if in a in a tax year they receive um, $100,000 or more, either in, in gifts from non-U.S. citizens who are uh, domiciled outside the United States uh, or an inheritance, they have to disclose it. They don't have to disclose who it's from. They just have to file this uh, 3520 with their, their tax return. So, um, you know, that's that's a pretty good uh, good rule that they're not taxed on these inheritances. I'll tell uh, you. And gifts that are given to them. So, mm-hmm. and, and what they're people who are giving gifts to foreign nationals in the United States need to know is they they should not give what's called U.S. Citus property, which is tangible personal property located in the United States. I mean, don't buy a car here and give it to your your son who's here. That that is going to uh, attract a gift tax. Uh, And don't give U.S. uh, real estate because that's U.S. Citus property. So there's a lot of good planning that can be done in the... uh, the estate and gift tax area. Okay. Uh, and I know we've talked a little bit, I, I guess we've uh, thought about, like, I know that when you send uh, certain monetary instruments, whether it's a check or a wire transfer over $10,000, it gets on the radar screen with the IRS? Well, uh, actually, that's, uh, I think that's reported to uh, Treasury. Uh, those come under... Um, Customs rules, I believe, not not uh, not tax laws and um, custom re- laws. If it's money in and out of the United States, yeah, it's uh, it's for um, uh, under the anti money laundering mm-hmm. rules. I believe they uh, keep track of it. So if you if you're making transfers of ten thousand dollars or more, that's going to uh, they keep track of those transfers, usually if they're made through the banking system. Even within the United States, it it's sort of raises but a red alert. if you're carrying money out, out of the United States or into the United States in a paper bag, um, when you come in, they have these signs that say you have to declare um, the um, cash or negotiable instruments and things that, that you're bringing uh, in or, or taking out of the United States. Right, right. Now, I know I, I just, we couldn't absolutely end unless we actually talk about, how about if I'm so annoyed with all of these crazy, <laughs> annoying rules, and I say, you know what, to heck with it. I want to renounce my U.S. citizenship. I want to give up my green card. I'm tired of paying every more than 50 cents on the dollar on every penny that I make because Uncle Sam is my partner without giving me any ideas to help me in my business. Can I do that? And what does that mean for me? Uh, yes, you can do it. Um, you might have to wait in a long line in some countries in order to do that for the citizens who are renouncing uh, their U.S. citizenship. Um, the What we have uh, is, uh, is an exit tax rule now, um, and these rules are described uh, quite well in IRS Publication 519. And I believe there's some new information uh, on uh, the uh, uh, 
requirements for filing uh, tax returns and things. Basically, you have to have been uh, current with your five uh, most recent tax years. And uh, and there's a form that you have to file, which is an 8854 form for, um, that goes with your uh, last tax return. And then there are all kinds of rules related to uh, how the exit tax is calculated. Uh, so they take a percentage of the money... Supposing, for example, I know in this example you said if your net worth is $2 million or greater, you're subject to an exit tax, yeah. or it's one of the three criteria if you fulfill? Yeah, and it's basically it's, um, it's coming up with a tax on uh, the appreciation uh, in the assets that, uh, that appreciated while you were a U.S. citizen, or if you're a green card holder, uh, from the time you were um, a resident for tax purposes. And it's pretty complicated uh, stuff. But but one of the other uh, uh, implications of doing that is in, in 1996, when they came out with the, um, the rules for uh, expatriation tax um, that... Um, that had a had a lot more rules than the original rules did before 1996. There was this thing called the Reed Amendment that was stuck into the uh, the the bill, and um, what that says is that U.S. citizens who renounce their citizenship may not re-enter the United States, and uh, if they renounce for tax purposes, and just in the last month or so, um, a, a couple of different uh, attorneys had uh, asked me if I knew what was going on in this area, because they were dealing with clients who haven't uh, been given a, uh, a visa to come back into the United States. So, yeah, there's criminal penalties. You're not allowed to come back, but that's if you say that I'm giving it up purely for tax purpose. If you say I'm going back to take care of my elderly parents or my family and obligations back in my birth country. Right, and then, you know... And they, here's the money and here's the penalty or here's the whatever, the exit tax or whatever we call it. Yeah, and the issue is who, who has to prove what in uh, in those situations. Oh boy, Paula, I'm so glad it's you doing this area. I'll tell you this. Immigration law is pretty complex and convoluted, but oh boy, immigration added with tax, international tax law and tax law applicable to foreign nationals is a whole another area uh, that really having someone like you uh, working with companies and businesses and clients, someone who's familiar with these issues is so critical so that they can truly appreciate and take advantage of possible options, do some tax planning and strategy, strategizing, and really work together uh, with you, I guess, in order to alleviate their tax burden and understand the tax implications for businesses, for individuals, for high net worth individuals. I know we're past the 45 minutes, but I didn't know if you wanted to wrap up with any closing comment. Uh, well, it, uh, other than it, uh, it is very, very complicated. I've done a lot of writing in the area, mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, actually uh, there'll be uh, an, an article um, that's going to be posted um, so you can um, read that. And uh, I have a lot of articles in this e-newsletter that I've been writing since 2004 that addresses a lot of these different topics uh, very simply. Um, 
which I try to do because I know it is so terribly hard to understand uh, why, uh, what the rules are. And you know what, Paula, I've read one of your articles called The Ten Rules of U.S. Taxation, which I thought was brilliantly written. And both Yuni and I were talking about how beautifully and simple and clear and succinctly it was explained. If it's possible to get permission from the publishers or whoever, it would be wonderful for us to share it with our listening audience today on Murthy.com. Yes, you're going to be able to do that. I'll follow up with you after the uh, um, telecast. Sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Paula. And for all of you in the audience, thank you for taking valuable time in the middle of your day to participate in our teleconference. Uh, We have absolutely the expert in the country that works in this area. And we hope that even though it was complex, arcane, difficult, maybe in some parts, that at least it gives you a sampling of what's out there. Thank you for participating, and we really look forward to continuing to help and guide you on all issues connected with U.S. immigration law. Uh, Thanks a million, and have a wonderful day.